Spencer, this episode of the Bell News Podcast brought to us by our good friends at Be Cool. You know, online training simulators are hot, hot, hot right now. You can just go race around in the virtual world, never have to ride on actual roads. But there's only one of these online training simulators that lets you simulate, like, the actual routes that you yourself ride on. And uh, that's Be Cool. I don't really get how it works, Spencer. Educate me. How does this work? Yeah, Fred. It's really simple. You take your GPS from a ride you did maybe at home, maybe on a really cool trip you did somewhere. You put it on Be Cool, and then it will simulate it for your smart trainer indoors, and hopefully it's your Be Cool smart trainer because they also make those. And it's perfect because I'll tell you what, I woke up this morning in Boulder, and it was zero degrees, and it's quite snowy. So this is the way to avoid freezing to death in the winter and get in those rides. And... If you go to becool.com slash partners slash VeloNews, you can enter to win a Be Cool Smart Trainer and you'll get three free months of the Be Cool uh, online training service, which is, which is a great way to make it more fun when you're in the pain cave this winter. So becool.com slash partners slash VeloNews. Check I'm, them out. I'm very educated now. Thank you so much, Spencer. Uh, all right, that again is Be Cool partner for this week's episode. Let's get on with the show. You're tuned into the Vel News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison, Dane Cash joining us virtually. And guys, it has started. The 2018 UCI World Tour is underway. Oh, let's welcome it back into our lives. Sweet. Yay. Yeah. Welcome back. Guys, what has been your favorite moment of the 2018 UCI World Tour Series thus far. Spencer, we'll start with you. Oh, man, there's just so many. I it's, know. It's hard to kind really? of pick only one, but I got to think that my favorite is probably all of the cute photos of uh, the the little uh, animals in, in Australia cuddling with the with the riders, the baby kangaroos and the koalas. It's it's lovely. Mm. Snakes. Wonderful, Ugh. exotic Fauna. Dane, do not start with the snakes. I do not want to talk about these snakes. It is disgusting. So, so that's right. It is the Tour Down Under going on. Dane, how about you? Do you have any favorite moments from the Tour Down Under thus far? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk racing, uh, actually, and I'll go with uh, Andre Greipel getting a win uh, for the first time in a little while. He had a, a kind of a, a down season, I would say. I mean, he, he was 35 for half the season in, in 2017, so it is to be expected. But I, I was kind of happy to see him get a win this early in, in uh, 2018. Nice to see him kind of back in back in form and I get some some good some good names over there with uh, Ewan and Sagan etc. Yeah, you know Ewan is always raring to go for his home grand tour the Aussie rider for Mitchelton Scott, the new name for that uh, Orica team. I, I got to say guys, my favorite moment from the 2018 World Tour season this far has been, I don't know, it's too early for bike racing. I'm a Debbie Downer. I haven't watched any any part of this race. I've consumed no, no Tour Down Under content. I haven't even looked at one photo of a rider holding a cute baby kangaroo. Am I am I in Grinch mode? What's going on? I, I just, something tells me it's, it's like January. We should be uh, still skiing and drinking hot chocolate, not watching bike racing. Come on. I'm so starved for World Tour racing at this point that I'll, I'll take what I can get, even if it's koalas and, and relatively boring flat stages. So I'll take it. Yeah, that's right. Dane is a noted not cyclocross fan. I remember. I remember you one time <laughs> cat, uh, characterized it as time trialing in the mud. If I recall yeah, from a that, few that years ago, that is something that I have said before, and will say again. I believe. Yeah. Ooh, hot take. <laughs> uh, muddy take. Well, let's get on with the show. We have a great show today. We are going to break down all of the action from the USA Cycling 
National Cyclocross Championships. Spencer was out there. He raced. He watched. He interviewed people. He drank beers. He roller skated? Did some roller skating. Mm, We have lots of questions for you about your roller skating and maybe a couple from the race itself. And then we're going to have a discussion about the state of the 2018 women's peloton because we have the women's world tour kicking off here in a few months we have some big rider transfers and dane you have been catching up with some of the marquee names from the women's peloton over the last week or so so we're gonna have a discussion about the state of women's racing also talk about the new cyclist alliance which is the riders union that has launched and uh yeah cross and women's cycling a lot on the agenda today so let's get to it cyclocross nationals ended this past week and it was in reno nevada Spencer, you were out there. First of all, give me just like the the best experience that you had over the weekend. What what's atop the pyramid? Well, I, I'd say watching the elite men's race is pretty pretty much the top as far as things directly related to the race itself. Uh, I did win fifty five bucks at roulette, which was wow. really fun. Um, I don't know if our read- our, our listeners really want to hear about that. That the men's race was a awesome duel between Stephen Hyde. Jeremy Powers, as you may know, Hyde, former protege of Powers, a little bit of a master and pupil type dynamic going on there, came down to the last lap. Very exciting to watch. It was a good day of racing overall from a spectator standpoint, so I'd probably put that at the top because um, there's a nice backstory as well beyond simply the X's and O's of, uh, of a, tight, uh, a tight final lap of racing. Dane, what was your takeaway from that men's elite race? I mean, were you just on the edge of your seat watching the live webcast? I was actually, yeah, and, and surprised to be that way too because, you know, one of my, you know, as, as Spencer so eloquently put it, you know, one of my complaints <laughs> about cyclocross and, and one of the reasons I do kind of often see it as time traveling in the mud is that, I think it, it definitely suffers at times from having one or two riders that just dominate and, and the, the competition can be a little stale. And you see this in, in Europe and, and we've seen it in the U.S. all the time. And just the fact that we were able to see Jeremy Powers really giving Stephen Hyde a, you know, a, a challenge after a, a season that it really wasn't clear what kind of form Powers was going to be. And I think that was really good. And it's really healthy, not just for this one race, which was fun to watch, but it's good for, for the future that, that this competition is still there that we don't just have this one rider just wrecking everybody which does kind of relatively often happen in cyclocross now i'm right there with you i mean it was such an exciting race to watch from a spectator standpoint and yeah the story to me really was jeremy powers who has had two solid years of medical problems body problems fighting to get his form he's been sick knee problems i mean just this long list of problems. Meanwhile, Stephen Hyde has been on this upward trajectory. I mean, last year he was untouchable. This year in the domestic scene, he was untouchable. And coming in, I didn't really expect anyone to really be able to touch Stephen. And instead, Jeremy goes out there and doesn't just challenge Stephen Hyde, but he like he rode so aggressively at the front of that group for the entire race, rode with a ton of passion. You know, the live stream caught these shots of his face. He was gritting. He was grimacing. He was doing everything he could to thin out the herd and then stay with Steven. And I got to say, my hot take is, look, chapeau to Steven Hyde. He, ran, he rode a really smart race. Two-time champion, defended his title. He won the race. All the credits deserved there. But, man, I got to say, I think Jeremy Powers kind of won this race. Not just because he rode so well, but because it did come after these two straight seasons of disappointments. Fred, I'd say that the overall fan sentiment probably lines up with you there. Everyone likes Stephen Hyde as well. He's 
very, very friendly, easy to say hi to. He's, he's a fun guy to have on the scene. It's not like they don't like him, but Powers is such a mainstay of the cross circuit, four-time champion, and man, just the number of people who are coming up to him at, after the podium ceremony for autographs and selfies and just all sorts of old friends and everything, and he is he's just the a, a friendly, professional guy who's absolutely happy to talk to all those people and take all the time that they ask of him. And yeah, for sure fan favorite and just a great race in general, because, um, it was, it was, it was not easy. There was a, there's a really tough run up on this course, nowhere to hide on that sort of thing. Difficult off camber that was loose and rocky. And, um, then the flat power section of the course through this grassy park, uh, that's a pure fitness thing. And, uh, yeah, you could draft a little bit, but Powers was usually on the front, so he wasn't doing a whole lot of drafting. So here's a question I have for you guys. So, well, first of all, having watched Powers dominate um, the national championships for three years in a row, I, I guess like four years, he's won four national championships, and they were all in pretty dominating fashion. I, re- I remember like cheering against Powers for a couple of those nationals, just being like, all right, I want someone else to win. So it was very strange to then be like, I, I felt myself 100% in the bag for Powers, cheering for him. Um, he rode so aggressively at the front of the group, and it really was his efforts that thinned out the herd. You know, I have a question for you guys, which is, do we think Powers may have been able to take it from Hyde had he not been so aggressive in the front part of that race? Anybody? Yeah, I asked Powers afterward about the tactics he he went with at this race in terms of is is this something you planned on from the get-go to ride aggressive, to ride the front and everything. He said, yeah, that was pretty much what he wanted to do. He likes to do that. When he feels good, he wants to be on the front controlling it. He wants to be the one making the selections. I I don't think he regrets uh, the the approach he took to it. I think perhaps if he'd been a a little more conservative tactically, he would have had a few more matches to burn in the end. On the flip side, if he hadn't been driving the pace as much, it's it's conceivable that Kerry Werner, for instance, would have been in that final group on the last lap or, or even perhaps Tobin Ortenblatt and you never know how those things play out. If one of those guys challenges and burns their final match, sure, they might not be the one to win, but if, if, they, if they move up to that second wheel position and push Jeremy back, that could be the gap that Hyde needs to get away on the run-up or on the off-camber. It's just another wild card. So to pare it down to a mano-a-mano type thing, that usually is a better approach. And um, yeah, I mean, Hyde, the outright favorite, and he, he rode like it. What do you think, Dane? What was your impression of that last battle then between Hyde and Powers? Well, I think you kind of point out mano a mano probably your best chance there. And I just don't know that you get much benefit from riding in the wheels anyway. So, yeah, Powers is putting a lot of uh, effort out there early on trying to drop people and then putting in those attacks. But, you know, Hyde has to put in just as much to follow him. It's not like it's not like you can just kind of hide in the wheels like they're, you know, going downhill on a flat road. It's it's cross. I think it's a little different story for that. So I see what you did there. Hide in the wheels. Nice one. Mm, that wasn't even intentional. But and you, but yeah. And yeah. you can, and you definitely cannot draft on a run up. So there's that. But guys, I think yeah. we also really have to spend a little time talking about Katie Compton's 14th consecutive national championship uh, victory. A little time. No, we're going to spend a <laughs> lot of time talking about that. And, you know, you, you talk about powers and how at one point we were maybe in our hearts rooting perhaps against him a little, or at least rooting for a better battle back in the day. And, boy, I tell you, Compton is just – she's just an ageless wonder. She's uh, she's 
at least, I think she's 10 years older or more than, than for instance, Ellen Noble, who's a first-year elite this year. And uh, I will say that Ellen did a good job to keep Compton in sight for most of this race. She wasn't necessarily threatening Compton, I'd say, but uh, it wasn't a blowout by any stretch. No, in fact, I think it's the closest margin in all of uh, Compton's 14 victories. I think it was only seven, 10 seconds like that at the end. Yeah, you know, to me, watching that women's race, Katie Compton, you know, she she races so smart because she seems to know her, the strengths and weaknesses of her um, competitors really well, but she also seems to know just the, the course and like, when do you need to get on the front? When do you need to be the first person into this section? When can you hang out and say, all right, maybe I don't need to be the first person into these barriers, etc." And to me, it seemed like the feature on the course that she always wanted to be front into was the sand pit. And that just, I got, you know, I got to think comes from years and years and years of getting stuck behind someone balling it up in a sandpit. So, like, on the first lap, she let Ellen lead it out and, you know, was riding sort of second, third wheel, but, like, made it a point to come around right before the sandpit to lead into it. You know, surrendered some ground to Ellen on the run-up. Ellen, boy, ran up that hill so fast. I mean, it was like, wow, she took off like a rocket. And then Compton just sort of saw the gap back to everyone else and was like, okay, I know where my strengths are in this course. And, um, you know, rode calm and collected and smooth. You're exactly right, Fred. And that sand pit, it wasn't exact, it wasn't a, a particularly difficult sand pit, but you, if you, if you got out of the main rut, it was quite a bit slower. So it's totally understandable why she would have taken charge ahead of that feature. And yeah, she's, uh, extremely, extremely experienced and smart when it comes to picking this spots on the course that she needs to be present for. I mean, that women's race did kind of have elements of the the, the dirt time trial that Dane was talking about earlier. But I don't know, Dane, I mean, w- were you on the edge of your seat? Were you throwing popcorn at the computer screen? Well, I think Noble, just in finishing second, was achieving a, a pretty important objective. And that's just kind of proving that she was kind of back in shape after a, a tough mid-season for her. And so, yeah, I don't know that... It, I don't know that it was um, an edge of the seat sort of situation because it was pretty clear that that Compton kind of had that after, I would say, halfway through the race. But yeah, I I think just the fact that Noble was able to get up where she was, that was a big deal. And it was the kind of race where I was definitely interested in what was going on behind the the first place uh, position. So that was good to watch. And and even even though the difference between second and third was actually kind of big, I mean, uh, Noble had like a minute and a half from second to third. It was still a bit of a surprise just because she's had so many issues in the last uh, couple of races she's been in. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of those issues we wrote about this on the site, Michael better had a great interview with Ellen Noble and talked to her about the, um, she was experimenting with some crash diets and they didn't use the term eating disorder. It was disordered eating, which I guess there's a very firm delineation between that. But, you know, Ellen was trying to lose weight in the lead up to the 2017 cyclocross campaign and was cutting out, a lot of calories and talked to him about, geez, it just really wrecked her and she was exhausted all the time and was battling fatigue and ended up hiring a nutritionist to get her back on track. But, you know, she felt like she might be missing some strength coming into the 2017 season because she had been so fatigued and out of sorts after, um, you know, experimenting with some of these crash diets. And, you know, she had a really strong start to the season, podium at the World Cup in Waterloo, and then had some troubles in the mid part of the season. But, yeah, to come back like this at Nationals, 
um, you know, that, sh- that shows maturity. That shows the ability to not sort of throw it in when, when times are tough. Really promising for world championships as well, which are a few weeks away, and she's on the team going over there with a really strong U.S. women's team. So I'm excited to see what she could put together for that race, along with Compton, of course. Spencer, I have a question for you. So when I looked at this course and saw all the elevation, I thought that this would be a great course for Katie Keogh because, you know, she's such a strong racer, but she really excels on the uphills and that steep run-up and some of those climbing sections on the back of the course. What happened? Did you get a chance to talk to her? She talked at all about, you know, she was third, but a distant third. I didn't actually talk to her too much specifically about that, but I will say that I think it's a misconception that this course was particularly heavy on the climbing. It was, there was that hill section. Uh, It was a run-up primarily. Uh, You didn't really ride any of that hill to get the elevation, so that makes it a little different in that way. And otherwise, the vast majority of this course was just sheer power. With all those grass sections, there was also a really gradual paved climb to get you back to the finish line. Real Katie Compton terrain, as far as I was concerned. As soon as I rode this course, I was like, yep, Compton, all the way. Keo, I think that she was a little stymied by the by the first couple laps, having a, having a slightly slower start than Noble and Compton. And, you know, in these dry conditions, there's few chances to, to make back time if you are facing riders that are very consistent, like Compton and Noble were. So barring any sort of real mishap for those two front riders, it's just kind of, yeah, it does end up being a little bit of a dirt time trial. So now, Spencer, we have a number of these riders who will be heading over to Europe for the final two World Cups and then the World Championships. And as you wrote on the site, on the men's side of things, you know, Stephen Hyde was the only guy who went over there for the curse period and raced over Christmas with the other guys in the field, staying home, doing training camps. Powers was in uh, Albuquerque or New Mexico. Uh, Jamie Driscoll was in the desert. And it sounds like you were able to talk to some athletes, team directors, et cetera, about the split between racing in Europe and staying home and preparing for nationals. And I'm curious what, what people had to say to you about this. It's, a, it's an interesting question because obviously the competition in Europe, much, much higher. The courses almost always are diff, more difficult than the U.S. courses. It is tricky with the calendar, uh, for one, because uh, having nationals in early January means that if you are going to go over for a block of racing prior to or around the holidays, it's a lot of travel. And uh, generally speaking, from what I could tell, most of the sponsors feel that a top result in the U.S. trumps a sort of mid-pack result in Europe. So they're willing to sacrifice the experience a rider might get in Europe in order to get them properly prepared for nationals. Uh, they, I mean, across the board, everyone recognizes the value of a European trip to develop these riders uh, in terms of their racing acumen and uh, experience with difficult conditions, everything like that. I don't think anyone denies that. It's just a question of whether that actually is a return on investment for the sponsors, for the teams. And often it isn't in terms of the real kind of dollars and cents in terms of, oh, my brand, it's exposure in Europe that, that doesn't move the needle. Whereas from a rider's perspective, oh, it, this is going to help me become better in the years to come. And there are some teams that recognize that and will, are willing to invest in their younger riders that way. It's just, uh, it, it is a little case by case. And I was going to ask you, like, 
How do the writers feel about that? I mean, are there any guys or gals who wish they did have a team or a sponsor that would fit the bill for them to go over? I mean, who see marketing value in having them get better on the European circuit? Were there, were there any riders who were clamoring to get over there? Yeah, I mean, they, I think they all, they all want to race there and they all recognize the value of it. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty realistic about it in terms of knowing that there are t- times of the year that maybe are more appropriate for it than others, you know, in terms of the, the curse period, the Christmas period being difficult relative to nationals now. And with nationals moving to December, we might see a change. We might see more people heading over after nationals is over due to the, the next, you know, starting next, this next December, it will, it will go back to the December date for the nationals. But uh, I don't, you know, I think that they recognize the sponsors have certain needs and certain objectives. They're willing to work cooperatively with them. It's not like they are never going over to Nat- to to Europe to, to race these major races, but I, all of them, I think, re- they like to they like to win and they like to get on the podium. And so, to a point, um, their objectives and, and their desires line up with those of their sponsor. Uh, I should say as well that there there was one notable kind of exception to what I've been talking about in that I talked to Stu Thorne, who runs the Cannondale Cyclocrossworld.com team. And he pretty definitively said to me that he felt the exposure that his team gets by going over there is worth it for him as a team owner and a sponsor. And of course, this is largely due to the fact that his riders are often riding into the top 15, top 10, even sometimes on the podium. So uh, some of it's just a pure results thing. If you're getting those results, it will get you that exposure. But um, he was one of the exceptions where he did say he thought it was uh, worth uh, marketing so to speak. Yeah, and there's a long tradition of Stu sending his riders over there, but it, it does seem like every generation there's like, you know, there's there's Compton who goes over there and races and has success. Of course. She goes back and forth, but on the men's side, it always seems like there's like one sort of trailblazer who is keeping the tradition alive. It used to be Jonathan Page who would live over there and yep. live and train and race the World Cup. And then that, I feel like that mantle, that, that baton was uh, moved to Powers, and Powers for his years of dominance, talked about, you know, my goal is I want to open the door so that more American men will come over here and feel comfortable and race and have success. And I guess that's why I was a little bit bummed this year to see that only Hyde was going over there, knowing that, you know, these guys who came before him did kind of see themselves as trailblazers or as like trying to create a system by which more people could go over there, sponsors could see value in it, and like try to climb the ladder because... Man, and whether it's World Cup cyclocross or World Cup mountain bike, it's like it doesn't matter how fit you are. It's like you have to do those races to gain the experience to excel at them. You know, like you just you got to be there and dedicate to do it and the, the style of racing and the competition and chopping people and blah, 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 blah. And I don't know, like I, I really hope that sponsors and teams do see more value because I personally would like to see more guys uh, and gals going over there. Well, I think you know part of it, and and it's uh, not something that I you know would would love to say as a, somebody who is trying to fly the flag for you know American Cross. But I think a part of it is just that there ne- there needs to be the talent level of people who are able to contend in those races, and and maybe Hyde's the only guy that can really get up there in those top tens right now. Maybe not, you know, maybe there are other riders who could. But I think if you had more riders who are capable, you'd have more more guys going over there, and uh, hopefully that will continue to happen. But but until that happens, it, it might be kind of tough to really um, incentivize that. Yeah, Dane's right. I agree with that, and that's what I heard from people as well. Where I, I 
I would ask them straight up, is is this a results thing? Are we talking top tens? And usually they're like, yep, if it's in the top 10, then it's a lot more enticing. And furthermore, unfortunately, the bike industry is just not doing very well right now, bike in general. And um, that's uh, that affects everything. And, and certainly you see it in the way that cyclocross sponsorships have been going in the last few years, where there are a lot more individual privateer setups, guys like Tobin Ortenblad, guys like Kerry Werner, who are just one-man teams, essentially, and they're putting it together on their own. They're working on relatively limited budgets, and yeah, flights to Europe are expensive. I, the other thing I want, really want to uh, see for them going over there is to say, ha- have some of these guys and gals start developing the really weird, like, uh, Belgian Euro cheering clubs, you know? Like, remember Eric Tonkin? He'd go over there, and he had just had these, like, random Belgians who would uh, adopt him and be like, we are your cheering club now. I oh, want that for Kerry Werner. Fred, I, I hope you were following the Instagram stories on the Velo News account throughout Cross Nationals this weekend, because Jeremy Powers did a beautiful rendition of the Eric Tonkin fan song that the Belgian fans had had uh, composed and would often serenade Tonkin with when he raced over there. And Tonkin was on the scene, actually, here in Reno, or there in Reno, uh, working with the Kona S&M team. Uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was quite a treat to get that, uh, that song. Plus, I'd love to hear some type of Flemish song that utilized the poetic name that is Orton Blad. Blad. You know? I feel like he, yeah, he... Mm, let's hope so. Yes. Uh, moving on, Spencer. So you were at this event. We watched it uh, through our computers. What can you say about the overall ambiance and course, and just sort of the, the the look and feel of the Reno Cyclocross Nationals? What will you take away from it, and what was your overall take from it? I will say, you know, it's a national championship, so there's always excitement there's always there's good racing as we've talked about but uh unfortunately i would say it was kind of a just sort of a mediocre event in venue in general it's the the venue didn't do a very good job of kind of blending the the team tents and the vendor tents together Mm -hmm. so i felt like there were fewer fans that could go over and you know walk by the Rafa tent or walk by the the Donnelly tent and see the riders and do that sort of thing. I feel like that was um, a little bit unfortunate for the fans. The, the venue, the way the the course was on the venue, also made it hard to watch the. Um, well, you obviously can't always watch the entire course, but some venues do it better than others. And this one, to me, it was a little difficult to see like multiple parts of the course to follow the action as it unfolded, especially during these exciting pro races. So, uh, yeah, it's I, I'd, I'd, I hate to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer, but to me, it wasn't really the best nationals in that respect. Um, the course itself, it's hard because... Uh, in Reno, and as is the case here in Colorado and a lot of Mountain West regions or areas, it's um, it's really just dependent on the weather. If it had snowed, if it had gotten wet, this probably would have been a much more challenging course, and we you know it would have been probably more entertaining as well. But it was dry, it was fast, and uh, I think that led it to just be. Um, you know, it's an okay course. They they did the best they could. I will say that. You know, the other thing about racing out here in the Mountain West is that, for the most part, parks do not have the terrain relief that that lend themselves to exciting cyclocross courses. It's just not how the topography is out here. But um, 
the organizers did a very good job of utilizing that one hillside and getting the most out of that to afford uh, the, the challenge of the run-up, the technical challenge of the descent, the off-cameras, the turns. Those for sure were very challenging. It's just they were a small portion of the overall course. Uh, as I said, the sand pit was a nice addition, and they did a few other things uh, on that flat, grassy area of the park. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's sort of like medium like a b maybe okay. if you're if you're giving it a letter grade uh and of course the racers make the course and there was some of that but um yeah it's um i think that overall it seemed to me like the reno cross community is still sort of developing and growing there were some fans out but it wasn't um, you know, it wasn't overwhelming, the number of fans that came out. Uh, that could be in part due to the fact that USA Cycling charges a $15 gate fee uh, for a wristband um, it's for the whole week. But still, it's, it's, a, it's a barrier to entry to get people in to watch. And uh, uh, we'll see what happens. You know, as we know, Interbike, the trade show, will be coming to Rito starting this next uh, fall and going forward. And they're going to have a cross race in conjunction with that, uh, which is the outgrowth of Cross Vegas. And maybe that recurring major UCI race, part of, part of Interbike, will uh, be a way to continue what they've started here with this national championship and get the community invigorated, get more people into cyclocross, and maybe uh, maybe we'll have cross nationals back here in Reno in five years, and I'll be much more uh, much more optimistic about it. I mean, I'm not saying it's terrible, but um, for a cross national championship. I would say it probably doesn't match up to something like last year in Hartford, for instance, which, well, which had the, the, the backing of yeah. all of the New England cyclocross scene, which, as we know, is really it, it's hard to compare. And they had that big slip and slide hill. Uh, I hear you on that one. One thing I got to say, I don't know if you, how you feel about this, Dane, as someone who watched it from the comfort of your own basement. Um, UC Cycling gets an A++++ for the live stream. You know, I've watched a lot of shaky live streams over the days for cross races and small crits and sort of, you know, not the like world tour broadcast that's being beamed through your computer, but sort of the the lower down ones. This one felt great. It felt really professional. Yeah, I think it's a it's a big, big thing to getting people more interested in, in the sport, whether that's cross or whether it's road, uh, just having better access to watching the the racing is, is really important. I think we've seen a little bit, um, we've seen big strides forward actually with uh, Trek providing some some racing coverage uh, the last couple of years and now people can watch, yeah, nationals and it, it doesn't look crappy. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. I think that that's a, a huge way to get people interested. So that's a big step forward. And furthermore, they broadcast all the races on Sunday, including the juniors, including the under 23s. And I should say the under 23 men's race was very exciting too. I was about to say that was the most exciting race of the day until the elite men's race happened. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chris Blevins, like, uh, hopping a triple stair or something like that en route to the win. Kid's amazing. Awesome. Stay tuned for a story on him. I'm working on that right now, actually. Um, But as we all know, the one thing that gets people amped up on cyclocross is parties. So, Spencer, give us some finer points from the post-race party. I I have some memories of various cross-nationals post-race parties in my brain. I I can think of the one you're going to mention. Oh, yeah. But uh, (laughs) what happened? Give us the lowdown. Am I starting with mine? Oh, yeah. And you'll throw yours in later? Okay. I uh, Yeah, so... Reno's a Reno's an interesting town. Of course, there's the the strip with the casinos, and then there's kind of all these little uh, enclaves of of just sort of, uh, you know, locals who have uh, they they like their they they have niches. They do fun things. It's different. Um, 
it's so we went to first off we went to a roller skating rink yeah which was, i saw your instagram of the roller skating that looked awesome it was really fun and i'm actually really kind of disappointed in my fellow cross nationals participants because there weren't very many of them there it was mm. it was a few of us and some of the people who were putting it on uh we had an awesome time i'm saying people missed out because it was it was a blast and uh yeah that if you think cyclocross is a bizarre little subculture, go to your local roller skating rink, and then you'll really see some people who have funny niche interests. It was great. It was really fun. Uh, that was the start, and then uh, off to, of course, uh, a watering hole in Reno that was um, very had a lot of local flavor. It was fun. All a lot of the top pros showed up, which is always entertaining. Cut loose a little after the season ended. Um, good DJ. Uh, Jeremy Powers talked to the DJ about DJ stuff, so there was mm, that. You DJ know. conversation. Oh, one <laughs> and, DJ to another. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, there was there was a little drama. Someone had, I don't know who it was, but they like reached over the bar and grabbed a full bottle of alcohol and then accidentally dropped it. The oh, bar, no! The bartender just Ooh. wigged out, jumped over the bar, and was just berating these people and like... He pretty much kicked him out, and it was uh, there's there some moments of drama. Overall, good vibes, but that was uh, there was, oh my gosh, uh, it was a good story. Now though, right? I mean, that's great. Oh, bunch, some arm wrestling. There's some arm wrestling. You know, it's it's your usual cross nationals post party. Bunch of skinny cyclists getting drunk on two beers and trying to snatch the bo- snatch the top shelf from the yeah. bartender. Come on, cyclocrossers. Risky, risky business. Uh, my my memory was just Troy Wells riding the mechanical bull at the Dave and Buster's out by the Mega Mall in Kansas City. Dave and Buster's. Mm-hmm. I knew it was the Dave and that- that's a great one. Great memory. Uh, well, <laughs> Cyclocross Nationals in the books, done, dusted. Spencer, you did a great job covering it. Uh, also, did a, did a good job racing. Tenth Thanks, place, Thank single you. speed. That's right. Wow. wow. I know. Such a pro. Thank you. Solid. Um, so there it is. It's in the books. And for more information, check out all the covers that we've done on thelanews.com. All right, Spencer, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this week's episode of the Vel News Podcast is brought to us by Be Cool. It's cold. It's snowy. You don't want to go ride around outside. Oh, why freeze your hands and feet and face in the cold? Go ride inside. And Be Cool is a cycling brand that does great things for riding indoors. They make smart trainers, and they have their online training simulator that lets you ride all sorts of different courses, thousands of different courses. You can even make your own to keep you warm when you train. And right now they have a deal going on, right? Yeah, they do. Go to becool.com slash partners slash velonews. You'll be entered to win a Be Cool smart trainer. And plus, everyone gets three free months of the online training simulator. It's more fun and easy and comfortable than ever to ride indoors. Plus, your toes won't sting in the shower afterwards. That's the worst. That is the worst. Okay, back to the show. Uh, Guys, we need to talk about the UCI Women's World Tour because we are coming up on year three of the Women's World Tour, and we have some new storylines to talk about, some rider transfers. There's a bit of a balance of power shakeup, but not really because Bulls-Dolmans, again, looks to be the strongest team. They dominated in 2016, dominated in 2017. Uh, Dane, you've been on the phone with a number of uh, movers and shakers from around the women's peloton. Um, So I guess a good place to start off this discussion is looking at some of the transfers that went on and whether we think there has been any real 
you know, change in the balance of power in the women's world tour. Yeah, I think you, you got a couple of, of big name transfers. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking uh, Cassian Yodoma and uh, Julian Dehor are the are the two two biggest ones that I'm I'm thinking about. Um, but whether it actually shakes up the balance of power, I and mean, that that's a whole that's a whole different ball game. I think the the balance of power is so far in Bowles Dolman's corner that actually shaking that up is is going to require a little bit more than you know a couple of riders changing teams. Uh, I think they're just so far head and shoulders above everybody else right now that I don't know if we can talk about a balance of power shakeup just yet. When we look at the teams that can possibly challenge Bulls, I mean, Canyon Sram has been up there. I also think about Team Sunweb with Corin Rivera and um, some of the other riders they have on that squad. But, you know, it does seem like it's very much dependent on the course, whereas Bulls is kind of the only team that has the firepower to dominate on flat races, hilly races, mountainous races, stage races, etc. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of crazy. If you look at uh, Bulls' lineup, you've got the probably the best rider in the world right now, Anna van der Breggen. You have uh, Megan Garnier, who was the winner of the Women's World Tour the previous year. And the team also has the last three reigning world championships. And they're not the same riders as those two I just named. So that's five riders that are basically capable of winning on all kinds of terrain. You know, five riders who are in the conversation for, you know, top tens in the world. And that that ability to kind of put any one of those riders in, and, and they usually have multiple of those riders in, in any given race, uh, it just, you know, everybody else kind of kind of pales in comparison. And, and as you said, uh, that whole multi-terrain ability really, really puts them over the top. Yeah, it's funny. I think back to, like, HTC high road as the, you know they had one year where they re- they won like, i don't know, like 50 races or something like that sprints they didn't really win any major stage races but on the men's side that's the closest comp i can think of in the modern era to having a team that was that dominant and they didn't even come close anywhere close to how dominant bulls is yeah i think people talk about sky and how dominant sky is on the men's side right now and it's it's nowhere near what bulls has i mean sky dominates the tour de france when sky targets the tour de france like that that's definitely true and yeah they've done well um in other races they've certainly done well in one week races but nobody just crushes one week after another one day races stage races flats hilly races mountains whatever the way that uh, bulls does on the women's side so i I don't i don't think there's a really good analog and and yeah you you said hgc they probably come closest and you're right they don't they don't really come that close yeah and bulls essentially won half of the women's world tour races in 2016 it's unbelievable it's unbelievable and they did so in really interesting fashion i think back to some of those ardennes races where you know obviously bulls has strong riders but they're also really smart because you'd look at the front group in some of these races and there'd be like five or six riders um you know uh nibia doma was up there and um you know but bulls always had like two or three and they would be smart and take turns attacking the group. And, you know, it was either Dagenen or it was Vanderbregen who would, uh, you know, be able to get the get the gap. And a lot of times, I mean, it was Vanderbregen won all three of those races, but she did so by countering moves or like going after another teammate had launched an attack. Yeah, they definitely have team tactics down, or at least they, they showed that they did in the last two years. I mean, you look at, as you kind of point out, the way that they worked in, in the Ardennes and, and uh, Van der Breggen won all three of those races, and that's kind of incredible, and that's really hard to do. It, that, to me, that's sort of like a counterpoint of, if you look at like Quick Step, 
in the classics the last couple of years. Like if you particularly that that one year at at uh, Hedney Spot where they had uh, three guys in the final four and they managed to like botch that. I think it's a perfect counterpoint to the way Bowles is able to really leverage their their riders. That shows that what you can do when you when you actually do have good tactical sense and you really know what you're doing from a tactical standpoint and also having just the best riders in the world does help. So now, Dane, you spoke with Bulls Dolma's team manager this week, Danny Sam, in addition to Vanderbregen, and I have some questions for you specifically about Danny Sam and how he balances the wants and needs of these riders. Because, you know, as we've seen in the past with teams that have multiple stars who can win, sometimes maintaining harmony on the team comes down to, like, giving each rider a chance. So what did Danny have to say about how he he manages this dynamic? Well, Danny's, uh, the, the first thing that he kind of pointed out and the thing that he definitely kind of kept coming back to was communication, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You definitely need to have good communication lines and team with that many stars. And it seemed to work last season and the season before just based on their results. I mean, I, I can't necessarily speak to the actual harmony in the team behind the scenes, uh, but at least in terms of their results, it certainly worked. Uh, and and Vonderbrecken herself sort of echoed the same kind of thing, saying that, you know, they go in, they say what they want to win, that they kind of try to hash out what what each rider's hopes and and objectives are. And then, it, at least from Vanderbrecken's Vanderbrecken's perspective, uh, you know, they respect each other and they they kind of try to follow through with those various uh, various plans. And that's what Stam kind of said is that it's all about communication and respecting each other and. Yeah, I don't know whether that is 100%, um, you know, rainbows behind the scenes, but it certainly seems to be effective uh, at the races because they had really very little trouble, I think, in uh, leveraging all their various uh, stars this past two seasons. So, Yeah, that's really interesting because, yeah, you know, at, at face value there does seem to be this simpatico relationship. But, you know, as we've seen a few times over the years, it has broken down. I'm thinking back to the 2006 Philadelphia International Classic. 2016. 2016, rather, where there was, um, you know, I mean, Dane, you were at that race, and there was definitely some tension between um, Evelyn Stevens and Megan Garnier at the finish. Garnier won. Stevens was going for the Olympic qualification. Had she won, it would have been an automatic qualification. She was second, so she still had to, um, I believe, qualify in a different manner. She did qualify for the Olympic team, but it sounds like there was some tension at that race. And then last year, you know, we saw Vanderbregen at the Hampton Tour of California win the overall, and Garnier was a little upset at the finish line of the final stage. I think she was in third overall heading into the final circuit race and ended up pulling out and was, you know, was visibly upset. And I think she was a little upset at the way the team dynamics played out. So, I mean, it does seem like you know, managing the expectations of riders is something that Sam does have to do. I mean, any boss has to do that when you have multiple stars. But, you know, I just would think it's not something that happens perfectly every single time. Yeah, I, I think those are good examples of of you can see what's kind of going on behind the scenes. At the same time, I, you know, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, you talk about NBA teams sometimes, for example, of having, a, you know, a lot of big personalities and having trouble um, with those personalities kind of working together. And, and, and a lot of times when a team is not having success, people will point to those kind of personalities clashing behind the scenes. Well, if Bowles is having trouble with personalities clashing behind the scenes, it's, it's apparently not affecting their work because they're still managing to crush it out on the road. So I think whatever they're doing, uh, they, they don't seem to have a whole lot of reason to change it right now just because the the success that they've had. And I think with Stam 
you know, he's he's basically saying that he asked Raj what they want to do. It sounds like he kind of makes the final call on on who's doing what. And for now, um, yeah, I don't know if feelings are being hurt, but it's 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 at least effective. And, and that's, uh, I think, going to be a reason for them to keep doing what they're doing for now. So, Dane, you talked to Vanderbregen, and uh, that piece is up on VelNews.com right now. Go check it out. I thought there were a couple interesting tidbits to come out of that. The first is that Vanderbregen says she just, like, lets all her fitness go away in the offseason. Just, like, yeah, that was, just takes it down to zero. Yeah, that was really interesting. I was sort of asking, I was asking about her offseason, what she'd been up to. Um, and I, you know, kind of expected her to say that she'd kind of relaxed a little bit. And she did. She, you know, she went on a little vacation with her boyfriend, I think. And she was just kind of definitely taking it easy. But then she just kind of flatly said, yeah, I like to actually just totally get rid of my form. It's the best way for me to kind of start the new season fresh is just kind of start by building back completely. Um, and that sounds like a lot of work, but it, it apparently is successful for Anna Vanderbregen. So uh, I, I guess like I shouldn't question it because it definitely worked out for her the last couple of years. Hey, I mean, Fred, you're employing that tactic right now. So I think you're on track to be uh, <laughs> dominate the women's world tour. Hey, man, this is a judgment free zone. Come on. Just because I'm not training <laughs> anymore and eating nothing but chocolate. Well, I wanted to know more about like, what does it look like for an Olympic champion to let herself go down to zero? Is it just like legs up resting or is it like, I don't know, go jet skiing or just like drink, well, drink a ton of beer? And also her zero is probably like everyone else's like 90 percent. Right, right. Come on. Yeah, I, I think for her, it was mostly uh, for her. It was it was mostly the vacation part and it's funny because i've actually talked to a number of riders the last couple of weeks about their off seasons and everybody has kind of a different take for her it was vacation uh logan owen and uh and uh, mike woods told me that i think there was a lot of netflix involved um sitting around and watching a, a ton of netflix i think with with woods in particular he said uh um actually not even not even the uh end of the season last year i think he was kind of already starting to get into the netflix a little bit and yeah so i, I think there's uh there's a, a couple of different ways to do it but you're right spencer it's not like these people are uh gaining 100 pounds in the offseason. I'm sure Anna von der Bregen, uh, on, on a bike, even in January, is still going to beat 99% of the people out there. Just know. binging the magnificent Miss Maisel or the crown, the royals. I don't know. Whatever shows my oh, wife man. has been watching. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other interesting thing is that she said that she's working on her sprint. Is Anna von der Bregen going to be a sprinter in 2018? I don't think Anna van der Breggen is going to beat any of the top sprinters on the women, women's peloton, but I think she knows that people are going to be watching her. And, and I think if you take, for example, on the men's side, a guy like Alejandro Valverde, uh, everybody knows every year that he is the top favorite in the Ardennes Classics. Uh, this without fail, he's going to be really good in the Ardennes Classics. And because of that, people are going to be riding his wheel like crazy. I mean, that's what he did really well early in his career. He still does that, I think, a lot, riding other people's wheels. But he knows that because people are going to be watching him, he's got to have a really strong sprint. And I think with Von der Breggen, it's the same story. Everybody's going to be looking at Von der Breggen in the uh, Ardennes Classics and, and pretty much any time there's you know, hills involved. That's her real specialty, I think. And for her to win races, she therefore really needs to, I think, have a good sprint because people are going to start following her like, like never before. And uh, I think it's a perfect time for her to be trying that out because she's going to need it against uh, some of these up-and-comers who are, who are uh, going to be challenging her in these races. So, Dan, you also spoke with the primary foil, I would say, to Van der Breggen and Bulls Dolman's dominance. And that is Annemiek van Vluten, uh, another Dutch rider, climber extraordinaire, like went so so fast up the Col d'Isouard that only three men from the Tour de France stage went faster than her. Um, just great all-around rider, amazing climber. What does Van Vleuten have to say about her 2018 ambitions and you know what it's going to be like taking on Bulls and Van der Breggen? 
you know, I think Van Vloyden and, and Van der Breggen said the same thing. And, and a lot of riders will say this if you ask them about rivalries. That the first thing that, they're gonna come, that comes to mind for them is that they're not focused on any rider in, in specific. That, yeah, that's right. sort of the thing that people like to say. And, and they definitely both said that. Um, I think with, with women's cycling in particular, you have to be looking at Bulls Dolmans if you're not on Bulls Dolmans because that's who you're going to be going up against pretty much every race. Uh, but with Van, with Van Vloyden, I think... The really interesting thing is the way that she's developed in the last two years, and particularly since the the middle of the 2016 season when she showed that she had this awesome form at the Olympics. She crashed out spectacularly in this horrifying crash at the Olympics, and fortunately was okay, recovered, and had a really amazing recovery and, and return to form. And you know, in talking with her, you I really get the sense that she doesn't feel like she's you know she's anywhere near. Uh, calling it quits despite being 35 and she's definitely had a late career uh, emergence as a star and it seems like she feels like she's just continuing to get better and um and i think the again the results definitely back that up uh she she just finished six at the santos women's tour and that's not a race i think she was especially targeting so i think we're gonna see you know even even more from uh van vloyden this season interesting well yeah i mean i think we're all kind of pulling for Van Vleuten, Corinne Rivera, Kazianimo Doma, you know, some of these other riders who have the chance to fight against Bulls because, you know, I mean, stories of dominance are great, but stories of dominance also give us as fans uh, uh, storylines to cheer for, which is the underdog. Yeah, definitely. I think there there might be a risk of a bit of fatigue of, of, one, of one team just dominating so much, and I think... Uh, I did ask Danny Stam about that, actually. I said, do you think it's healthy for the sport, you know, that your team is so good because everybody else is just uh, kind of paling in comparison? And, um, you know, I think obviously there is a, a risk of, of that, but I think also Stam kind of points this out, and I think it's a good point, that his team being so good definitely challenges other teams to get better, and it, and it challenges other teams to increase their payroll and try to challenge them and, and add better riders and, and hopefully that's what happens. I mean, hopefully that is the result of it as opposed to any kind of stale racing or anything like that. Uh, it remains to be seen. But, uh, yeah, but, I mean, any, any kind of uh, any discipline, and particularly cycling, this does happen. You have kind of stretches of dominance. And, and I think a lot of times that is the result. So hopefully that's what comes out of this. So the other big story I want to talk about in women's cycling uh, is the creation of the new women's uh, female cycling union called the Cycling Al- the Cyclists Alliance. This was launched in mid-December, um, and it's launched by Dutch rider Iris Slapendal, who retired in 2016, as well as Carmen Small and Gracie Elvin, who's an Australian. You know, Carmen, we know really well from the American Peloton. She was a great time trialist, stage racer. She's now a team director. And this Cyclist Alliance has been launched as a riders union to specifically work with the women's Peloton, represent them in contract negotiations, contract disputes, spread information about how to be a smart writer with your finances and the way that you negotiate your contracts. And then also to just bring up the the level of uh, women's cycling. Fight for things like um, equal prize money, minimum wages, and um, go to bat for these women, these female cyclists when they do have these disputes. Um, Iris told me that she got the idea when she had a contract dispute with a team and this there were no resources out there for her to go to to find out, you know, 
who to call, whether there were employment labor lawyers that could help her out, what type of recourse she did have. She got some help from the Dutch Cyclist Union, but said, like, the CPA wasn't really helpful, the UCI wasn't particularly helpful. And thought to herself, like, wait, I'm not alone. There are all these female cyclists out there, and there's no real resource out there to help us with our uh, problems. So in 2017, she and Carmen circulated a, a questionnaire, a survey, and it was like 300 and some professional women cyclists filled it out. And some of the stats that came back were really staggering, just about, oh, my God, this, the, the, the tiny paychecks, the fact that a lot of women are racing for basically no money. Um, and there's just sort of a lack of overall information about, um, you know, w- what to do with contract negotiations, et cetera. So they launched this in December. I spoke with Carmen last night. She was in Australia a real bummer. Sounds like she had some identity theft. Someone stole her passport. Ooh. I know. Ooh. So we're all hoping. If you're an Australian listener to the Velo News podcast and you took Carmen Small's identity, <laughs> give it back to her, dang it. We're going to freaking hunt you down. Yeah, you hubbard. You hubbard. Uh, Carmen said that you know she's been meeting with riders and team directors throughout uh, the Tour Down Under to talk to them about this new project. She was having a meeting, I believe, today or tomorrow and having them over to a hotel to talk about it. And she said that, you know, the interest is really growing. So I think this new Cyclists Alliance, I mean, I think all of us see it as a positive step forward. Um, I just hope that they're able to keep the momentum going because, you know, when you start talking about going to a bat against some of the big institutions in cycling and having to work with, but also against groups like potentially the CPA, potentially the UCI. Ooh, I could see how that could become frustrating and time consuming and just, you know, feeling like it could be a lost cause. Yeah. And it's, it's really necessary. I think we heard a lot last season about the importance of, and the growing um, uh, fervor for a, a union on the men's side. You think about all the, all the challenges that even the men's riders have and how hard it is to be a professional cyclist, especially if you're on the fringe. I mean, it's a little less challenging in terms of your uh, career security if you're Peter Sagan. But if you're a fringe rider, a continental team rider, there's a lot of challenges and it's really tough. And think of all those challenges on the men's side um, and just compounded by a lot of issues on the women's side. There's less money on the women's side and, and there's less sponsor support and the women's peloton's smaller. So they definitely need something like this. I think it's a, it's important. And as you said, uh, it's going to be tough for it to kind of continue to grow as it actually starts to come up against the challenges of trying to stand up to some of these big organizations. But it, it, hopefully it will because it's it's necessary. I think the riders need it. And, and uh, you know, Danny Stam, I actually talked to him a little bit about rider unions. And, and he said that it's just something that he thinks it's important that the women have that. They, that they need to have it. And, and it's uh, it's kind of about time. So. Yeah, you know, we have a story. We've been working with the Outer Line um, with some coverage around this issue, and and they have a story that's posting um, either today or tomorrow talking about some of the stories of abuse, neglect, emotional abuse, sometimes sexual abuse that has happened within the women's peloton. And to think that there's no group out there, no labor group that you could go to to be able to say, you know, hey, I was treated this way by someone and it was awful. Or, hey, you know, I, I want to have recourse. You know, you think about the way that like just the modern workplace functions and, um, you know, the, the types of resources there are out there for reporting abuse or for, you know, reporting someone who's not great. And to think that here's this sport that's been going on for decades and decades and decades, and not only is there nothing like that, there's nothing, there's nothing even close. 
to that. And and if you you as a rider are basically powerless in some of these situations. I think it's interesting that you kind of mentioned that they don't really want to be involved with the CPA or there's like la- a lack of interest there because uh, I think it would be interesting to see, um, you know, look down the road a couple of years, you know, who is having success in terms of rider union departments uh, and whether that, that actually works out in the end and, and what that might reveal about the CPA. Yeah, no, I think that'll be a good rivalry story to come down. Uh, <laughs> Cyclist Alliance versus CPA, who's going to have more success? Well, and I think, right. so yeah, the CPA is, supposedly has their own women's arm for, for 2018. I believe I saw that somewhere. And it's, uh, yeah. And anyway, the CPA hasn't been particularly effective for men's cycling, I'd say, in general. They, they just don't have any leverage. And I, and I fear that's the issue that the Cyclist Alliance will have as well, where there's not a lot of leverage. They They... Apart from trying to unify the riders themselves, they, they're just not in a position of power. Yeah. Well, I think we're all hoping and uh, we're all pulling for this group of, of women to gain some power, fight for some rights, uh, especially in cases of like equal prize money and uh, you know, m- mandatory minimum wages. I mean, these are, these are noble causes I feel like to fight for. So we're going to be keeping our eyes on the Cyclist Alliance and see what they're able to do in 2018. Okay, guys, before we get out of here, I think we got to have a little segment. Maybe a little who's off the front, who's off the back. I like it. I like it. Let's do it. All right, Spencer. Who is off the front this week? Who, what, what, what's on trend, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's not yeah, just yeah, a yeah. who. It's, it's anything. All right. Anything. Let's, let's not forget. Uh, I'm going to say that, that bunny hopping is, is off the front this week. Okay. Christopher Blevins, as I mentioned earlier, winning the under-23 men's cyclocross championship race in Reno. And in large part, it was due to the fact that he was hopping those concrete stairs, like you mentioned, and just remarkable display of talent. This kid is he's, he's amazing. And he's 19 years old. So I'm working on a story about him, like I mentioned earlier. Stay tuned for that. My off the back is tires, cyclocross tires, because a lot of people got flat tires at nationals. Mm. The, the elite men's race, the elite women's race, there wasn't as much of it, but certainly throughout the week, um, definitely in the under 23 men's race, we saw Gage Hecht, who was a real big favorite for that race. He flatted early and lost his chance at racing for a win. There are a lot of rocks on that course. It's a little unfortunate. So lots of ruined tubular tires out there following cross nationals. Very unfortunate. And then my bonus off the back is snakes. Dane tried to bring them up earlier. The problem is you got these photos from Tour Down Under, and we got so many cute photos of all little baby kangaroos and koalas and everything, but then, bam, Danny Van Poppel with a snake wrapped around his neck. That will haunt my dreams until... The next tour down under, probably. It is awful. Get those snakes out of there. I don't want to see those in my uh, cute baby Australian animal photos. Wait, wait, wasn't it wasn't it cone to court? Okay, sure, whatever. Yeah, yeah, same all right, thing. All right. Yeah, <laughs> just all kidding. Right. I know the difference. We would, wouldn't want to slander, you know, Danny Van Poppel for yeah. Either way, there's some gross snake photos out there, and I don't like them. Excellent, uh, Dane. Off the front. What's off the front? Uh, let's go with. Um Visible team kits and uh, commentators being able to pick things out in the peloton. I'm specifically thinking about uh, EF Education First uh, with their pink kit, which I don't know if I'm a fan of it from a design standpoint. I don't, I don't hate it, but it was pretty easy picking them out in the peloton, and that's uh, that's a big plus after uh, I don't know a couple years of of black heavy team kits. Those are kind of hard to pick out the difference between a 
one black kit and another can be kind of hard to pick out a you know a sky from a trek back when you know, there's a lot of black there and i think trek's got a great kit now and yeah like i said ef with the pink no trouble for phil and paul picking out the teams there uh and the flyover shots which is a pretty big deal uh off the back i'm gonna go with um Let's go with Caleb Ewan's uh, uh, sprinting position and strategy. Uh, I think he's he's a fast rider. I think he's going to do fine things at the Tour, tour Down Under. We're only we've only had one stage of the Tour Down Under in the books as of as of recording time here. So you know he could go out and win three stages, but uh, he in the first stage I think he went way too early in a sprint and allowed Andre Greipel to really come around and and crush that first stage. And I don't even think Greipel's that great at positioning, so it, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, and I think uh, Ewan, obviously, I guess he's still got a little bit to learn. Uh, and, and like I said, I think he's a chance he's going to go out and win a couple more stages here coming up. So we'll see what happens there. I agree with you on the EF kits, Dane. The only trouble for Phil and Paul is they will be able to see the kits, but I think they'll stumble over the EF education first Drape pack presented by Cannondale team name. That is and, a bit of a long one for those guys, I think. You're right. And they'll yeah. also probably keep calling uh, Taylor Finney Davis just because that's what they do. Right. Are well, they, they'll just call the team Chocolate Jocks or whatever <laughs> team was really hot back in 1997. Right. Oh, bless their hearts. <laughs> uh, okay, for my off the front, um, off the front this week, the little peeing boy fountain of Brussels, Belgium, because Brussels oh, yes. is going to be the host town for the Grand Depart of the 2019 Tour de France, and I just can't wait for all of the weird, like, images, art of whatever, of the little peeing boy, maybe a little peeing boy in a yellow jersey. I mean, we can start already. We got we can bust out some nice stock photos yep. for these announcement uh, stories, some analysis photo stories. We can throw the photo in there, too. Little peeing boy with a helmet on? Oh, it's great. It's great. Uh, so much. Um, off the back, man, that's kind of a tough one. You know, I think back to... Anna Van de Bregen talking about letting herself go down all the way to zero, which would be 110% for me. And I guess I got to say, off the back, would be training through the offseason. I think Anna Van de Bregen has it right. Let it go down to zero, man. Just hang out. Do what I'm doing. Um, so if you're some real tryhard, and <laughs> Spencer, and you're like hey. uh, staying fit through the offseason, I think that's off the back because it'd be like the Olympic champion. Just let yourself go. All right. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellanews.com. Subscribe to the Bell News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bell News on Facebook at facebook.com slash bellanewsmagazine. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash bellanews. The Bell News podcast is produced by Bell News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bell News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with a Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Curry classic Soul Drums. 